You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. This was never an effective Afghan force. It was much smaller than the figures people have quoted. It's a 20-year waste to get back to where we started. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We've got a real threat with climate change. If we don't do everything in our power, this crisis we're in will only loom larger. We just did more than a trillion dollars in infrastructure and we put it on the president's desk. That's a big win. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The Taliban gets comfortable, unveiling a familiar-looking government now blocking charter flights from leaving the country. And as the U.S. races to resettle thousands of Afghan refugees, we'll talk about it with Congressman Ro Khanna, Democrat from California, who serves on the House Armed Services Committee. And as the Treasury Secretary flags mid-October now for a possible credit default, there's your warning. We will get into the debt ceiling debate and proposed tax hikes on Capitol Hill with Congressman David Schweikert, Republican from Arizona. The panel today, Democratic strategist Roger Fist, Republican strategist George C., both with us for the hour. It was one thing to see the Taliban steamroll its way through Afghanistan. It was another level to see the group unveil its new government yesterday with a very familiar-looking group of people, all as the U.S. works to resettle thousands of Afghan refugees. And joining us to talk about this along with Many other issues on Capitol Hill. Congressman Ro Khanna, Democrat from California. Congressman, welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start with news from Afghanistan, as we heard today from Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who spoke from Germany about Afghanistan's new government. Here's what he said. Yesterday, the Taliban named a new interim government. We're assessing the announcement, but despite professing that a new government would be inclusive, the announced list of names consists exclusively of individuals who are members of the Taliban or their close associates, and no women. We're also concerned by the affiliations and track records of some of those individuals. Congressman, as a member of the Armed Services Committee and one who's been deeply involved in the resettlement of Afghan refugees, how worried are you about this new group, and, and will it pose a threat to Americans? I am worried, and I'm worried about the Americans still there. I'm worried about the Afghan allies that are still there. Uh, we uh, need to do everything we can to make it clear to the Taliban that they will suffer uh, economic consequences, diplomatic consequences, political consequences, and potentially even military consequences uh, if they do not comply uh, with allowing safe passage of American citizens. 
Secretary Blinken also noted the Taliban is not allowing some charter flights now to leave the country. <laughs> Congressman, are we at the point now where people who have not gotten out of Afghanistan may never get out? No, we're not. Uh, we still have options of getting people to the Pakistan border, to getting them uh, to the Tajikistan border. Uh, we have uh, options uh, of uh, making sure that uh, there are private rescue missions, and there are still intense pressure that uh, the administration can put to allow charter flights to leave. So uh, I certainly don't think we are uh, ever in that situation. Uh, and we will not abandon uh, Americans there or American families there. The president has made that very clear. Congressman Khanna, your district is home to the largest community of Afghan immigrants in the United States. There's even a neighborhood I see known as Little Kabul in Fremont, California. As the White House asks Congress for more money now to resettle refugees, do you believe the U.S. has the resources or will with that money to place tens of thousands more Afghans? I uh, do believe that we need more resources. Look, we were in that country for 20 years. We have an obligation to Afghans who worked for the United States government, who we promised freedom. We have an obligation to them. And Afghan Americans have made enormous contributions to this country. Look at my district. They're tech leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, doctors, vibrant restaurant owners. Uh, so it is to our country's benefit to have uh, the Afghan refugees here. They obviously need to be vetted. Uh, and we have a moral obligation to do that. I saw you tweet, to those with concerns, come to my district. You wrote on Twitter, I represent the largest Afghan-American community in the U.S. Try the food, meet the community. I think you'd come away thinking differently. What concerns are you hearing? Who is that message for? Well, that message is for some of the politicians who are out demagoguing the issue. I mean, I uh, heard one uh, Senate candidate say that uh, he was concerned that an Afghan refugee was going to blow up malls. First of all, the, they don't have suicide bombers in the same way uh, in the, the uh, Afghan-American community. I have never seen a single incident of that in, uh, in Fremont. And uh, secondly, uh, it's offensive to a lot of the uh, community that is hardworking, that is law-following, uh, and that is making uh, enormous contributions. Are you inviting Afghan refugees specifically to your district because of that local community? Absolutely. Our local community uh, welcomes them. They've been helping them. And not just the Afghan-American community. We've had uh, the uh, huge community in Santa Clara County and Silicon Valley mobilizing to help resettle Afghan refugees. They are welcome in our district. They will contribute to our district. And I hope that uh, other parts of this country will see how much they can enrich uh, those areas. We're talking with Congressman Ro Khanna, Democrat from California, and I'd like to ask you about the debate over tax and spending in Washington. It's a grand debate, Congressman. You're facing some very important deadlines this month. Do you believe Democrats can finish the reconciliation bill despite the pushback from some moderates by the end of this month so infrastructure can get a vote on time? Yes, I'm confident of that because we all know what needs to be done. We all know that there are left-behind communities in this country that need broadband, that need infrastructure investments. We need to know that we need to invest in childcare in community college and clean energy. Now, there are differences in our caucus about the spending levels. Uh, I believe the $3.5 trillion was already a compromise, but I ultimately believe that the caucus will get behind what the president wants and the president's agenda, that it is too important for us not to get something done, and we will work out those differences.
So what do you say to the Joe Manchins in the Senate and even moderates uh, in, in your own House of Representatives, Congressman, who say that's way too rich for my blood? I said, let's have a conversation, Senator Manchin. Let's look at what this will do for West Virginia. Uh, and I can make the case that a lot of the funding will actually help West Virginia. I want to hear your perspective on what you think uh, is not helpful. And then let's figure out how this package can be most helpful to places like West Virginia. And I'm confident that uh, knowing Senator Manchin, having had those conversations, that he will be reasonable and get to a yes. Why not just vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill uh, now and, and reconciliation when it's done? Why not just vote on it now? Because it's incomplete. Uh, you can't invest in more traditional roads and highways and have greater exposure to the fossil fuel economy without having mitigating climate provisions. You need the second half of the bill. And the second half of the bill is saying we need electric vehicles. We need to have a climate uh, clean energy standard. We need rural broadband so that we could have more remote work. So. You can't say, okay, we're just going to do the part of the bill that's going to make the climate situation arguably worse without having the climate part. And that's why it's a complete package. Then there's the matter of the debt ceiling, Congressman. Speaker Pelosi said just this morning that it will not go into reconciliation. Will Republicans then vote for it? Does this become a bipartisan matter? And what happens if you don't get to it in time? I do believe the Republicans will ultimately vote for it. It would be highly irresponsible if they don't. Uh, This has always been something that we raise with a bipartisan vote. It would show that they're not serious about governance. But one way or the other, the debt ceiling will be raised. America is not going to default on uh, our debt. And it's uh, a a terrible economic policy at a time that interest rates are so low uh, to not raise the debt ceiling. We can finance things at a very low interest rate. And so this is uh, a economically smart time uh, to be doing that. Then how much of this is about money already spent as we hear Speaker Pelosi refer to it as a credit card, Donald Trump's credit card that he loaded up with debt versus spending that would still be coming, the investments that you refer to. Well, these are new investments on top of uh, what we've already done for COVID, but you have to put it in context. I mean, the $3.5 trillion is over 10 years. In that time, we're going to be spending $7 trillion on defense. And uh, a lot of the money, new money, will be paid for by actually getting big corporations to pay taxes. Some of them are not paying any tax by having taxes on the ultra-rich, the billionaires and multimillionaires who are richer every day they wake up because their money has gone up in the stock market and aren't paying the taxes that working people are paying. Congressman Conner, there are a lot of questions about the job market now that we're seeing unemployment benefits and enhanced COVID benefits expire. The Fed is out with its beige book today, pointing to a deceleration in the economy because of COVID. This was supposed to be the month everyone came back to work as kids went back to school. What's the situation with the job market right now in California with some 10 million job openings around the country? How come people are not going back? It's a very good question. One challenge is the child care situation. I mean, people uh, have a situation where schools Uh, or not open, or even if schools are open, you have activities not open, after-school activities. Second, there is fear still with the rise of Delta. Some people are hesitant to go back to the workplace, particularly in jobs with large exposure to a large number of people. They don't want to risk their health. And third, having a year off uh, from work has made people rethink what they want to do uh, in their careers and want to make sure that they're going back to good jobs that are paying well. And Some of those jobs uh, aren't paying well or don't have the proper benefits. So 
there are a host of complex factors that are contributing to this that we need to address. Lastly, Congressman, we've got less than a week to the recall election in California. I can't believe it's almost here. And I see the vice president is in your state today uh, helping to stump for Governor Gavin Newsom. Will that help him win? And how worried are you about the turnout? I do think it will help. Obviously, having the vice president and the president come will be a a big help. I honestly, two weeks ago, was very concerned. I'm not that concerned today. Obviously, we have to get every vote in. Uh, But it seems the last week or 10 days, the message has really broken through. Uh, More and more people I hear are aware there's a vote, uh, are planning to vote, no on the recall. And so I actually believe that the governor will win by a pretty comfortable margin, which is very different than how I was feeling about two weeks ago. And now I think people have seen uh, what a drastic consequence it would be if Larry Elder were elected governor, and that has jolted people uh, into action. And uh, you know, Machiavelli says fear is often a bigger motivator than love. And I think the fear <laughs> of the alternative uh, woke people up. It's a very true line, isn't it? Congressman Ro Khanna, Democrat from California, we thank you for talking with us today on Bloomberg Radio. Thank you. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It was a fascinating conversation with Ro Khanna, the congressman from the Bay Area in California. Gave us a lot to unpack with our panel. Roger Fisk, Democratic strategist and principal at New Day Strategy, is with us for the hour, along with George C., CEO at Annandale Capital, former senior advisor to Marco Rubio's 2016 presidential campaign. It's great to have both of you back. And I want to start with Afghanistan, as we did with the congressman, As the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken calls on the Taliban to make good on its agreement and allow flights to leave the country. Here's the Secretary today in Germany. As of now, the Taliban are not permitting the charter flights to depart. They claim that some of the passengers do not have the required documentation. While there are limits to what we can do without personnel on the ground, without an airport, with normal security procedures in place, we are working to do everything in our power to support those flights and to get them off the ground. Roger Fisk, the Biden administration, says it will continue to evacuate people, even though the U.S. military is out. We've been hearing that uh, since before the withdrawal. Are we already finding that to be impossible? Well, first off, Joe, thank you so much for having me. And I love being on Georgia, on with George. I believe we were on together about a year ago. So thank you for that. Um, Absolutely. You know, what I think the Biden administration is confronting is that the Taliban realizes these last couple flights are essentially their last few cards to play in the insurgent posture that has gotten them this far, because in short order, they're going to have to become the the very uh, mundane 
and benign thing that we call a government. They're going to have to start worrying about sewer capacity and infrastructure and their electrical grid and things like that. Because as soon as these last couple pages of this last chapter are over, they become a government. They, they lose the posture and the righteousness and all the aspirations of being an insurgent movement. So I think what's gone on is they've realized that this is their last chance to play these kind of cards. And they're going to try to make it as difficult as possible. And I would imagine if this gets you know, significantly worse in the next day or two, that you're going to see the Biden administration ramp this up. I'm sure they're already doing that privately. Um, but they'll address this forthwith. I mean, this, this, it cannot be allowed to, to, to go on in this kind of a stalemate. So, George, how does the U.S. compel the Taliban to make good on its agreements uh, in this case? Or, or is this when people stop paying attention? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. Um, I, I feel like I'm watching a now weeks-long-running Twilight Zone episode. We've extracted all our military from the country. We don't have any way of making them do what we want to. Now, you can say you can use economic leverage and the IMF and things like that, but I, I really don't think the Taliban care very much about that. I think that uh, the Secretary of State of the United States has, has – and I'm not pointing fingers at this gentleman in particular, but – has never been in a much weaker position where we're wagging our fingers at them and telling them what to do. And I, I think they're more laughing at us than anything else. We pulled the military out, and that was our big whip, our big stick that we had to utilize. And that's that's now off the table for the moment. And I think what several people have indicated on both sides of the aisle is that we may have to send our giant whip back in the country in the form of special forces or drones or, or missile strikes or things like that. And it, it's just continued to be a messy situation. And I think most Americans really, really wanted us out of there on the right and on the left and in the center. I mean, I think it was 70, 75 percent. But the way we got out was tragic and it, it's going to hurt us for a long time to come. And I I think the Taliban may be more focused on fighting a civil war over the next couple of years than running the country. I, I doubt they have the capability to run the country very well. The matter of dealing with refugees is a big one, Roger. I'd like to hear from you on that. As we heard from Ro Khanna speak passionately about the resettlement here in the U.S. and the need to succeed in that mission, the White House is asking for over $10 billion uh, to help pay for the resettlements. How important is it for us to get this part right? Well, first off, the, um, we, we gave our word to tens of thousands of people that helped as interpreters uh, uh, in the in the theater, so there's a level of obligation there. Uh, before you even get to the conversation about us living up to our values, we told people that helped us um, in the day-to-day kind of functioning of the last 20 years and 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 implementing our policies there that we would facilitate their um, ability to to come back to America when this was um, done, or, or rather while it was going on. So the refugee component of this has to be taken very very uh, seriously. We have a very difficult history when it comes to the conclusion of these things. You can look at uh, the, the, the residual elements of our involvement in Vietnam and how that extrapolated itself into Cambodia. You can look at uh, how we our treatment of the Kurds in the first Gulf War, our treatment of the uh, Kurds again uh, pulling out of Syria recently. We're very good at starting these yeah. things, but we don't tend to be all that proficient when it comes to ending them. But for at least 70,000 of these folks, we gave our word that we would be there for them just as they were there for us. And we need to honor that. Those are some tough memories there, George, knowing that you're disappointed in the way this has been conducted as withdrawal. Does that make it more imperative that we succeed in this part of the mission? 
I, I agree with every word that was just said. I thought that was extremely well said, and I, I cannot improve on that. And I've heard quite a few protestations against us letting so many refugees come in the country and these murmurs and, and rumors about that we might be letting terrorists loose in the U.S. and all this kind of stuff. We should have a very detailed account on all our friends in Afghanistan. We've helped us for many years in that country. And if we don't have a very detailed accounting of that, it names, uh, all sorts of identifying infor- information so we can very, very clearly define our, our friends from potential yep. foes, shame on us because we really have made uh, a, I, I would say, a blood oath to people who've helped us. And we need, we need to fulfill that and we need to be true to that. I, I question whether we will. The big markups begin on Capitol Hill tomorrow. The debt ceiling is in the air. And we get another view on all of it now by Congressman David Schweikert, Republican from Arizona, who serves on the House Ways and Means Committee and a good voice to hear from at the moment. Congressman, welcome. I'd like to ask you about this uh, matter of the debt ceiling and how you think it should be resolved. The Treasury Secretary says we'll default next month. Should we suspend it or boost it? Well, um, my understanding is we are into what they call extraordinary measures. So we're yes. grabbing cash that's sitting in different accounts, and that's what's being used. Um, I've always been a little resentful on the default um, use of that language because it's technically not accurate. Um, default is if you didn't have enough cash flow to cover your bond payments, which we absolutely mm-hmm. do. Where you hit much more politically uncomfortable is when you don't have the cash flow um, without borrowing to continue certain political, you know, the programs, um, certain spending, um, but most, but you'd have enough cash flow for debt and the basic entitlements. Um, the debt ceiling becomes sort of that moment where hopefully you get the adults in the room and we can have a discussion. Cause if you look at our debt growth curve, even when you normalize for COVID spending, um, we're in real trouble. We're we're already in a huge demographic headwind. And with the craziness that's about to take place starting tomorrow in the Ways and Means Committee, where um, we're going to raise taxes on lots and lots of things, but we're going to even, looks like, spend twice as much as all the new revenues that would come from those new taxes. So, therefore, driving up the debt higher. Yeah. It, 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 we're in almost a type of fairy tale land fiscal insanity driven by the democrat majority right now i wanted you to hear from uh what we heard from nancy pelosi today the speaker of the house and have you react to that she was asked about the debt ceiling whether it should just be folded into the reconciliation bill she said no that's not the avenue here's how she finished that people say oh you just want to spend money no this is we're paying the credit card the trump credit card Uh, with what we would do to lift the debt ceiling. And when President Trump was president, we Democrats supported uh, uh, lifting the debt ceiling because it's the responsible thing to do. Uh, I would hope that the Republicans would act in a similarly responsible way. So, Congressman, this is Bloomberg, of course. We can get into this a little bit. The idea that this is a lagging indicator, if you will, a credit card to pay off Trump debt versus raising the debt ceiling and allow for future spending, which I think a lot of people consider it to be, those are two pretty different scenarios, right? Yeah, Should... and, and, and that's absolutely you know, duplicitous in language. First off, the reason the left doesn't wish to put um, the debt ceiling into um, the, the markup that begins um, tomorrow in Ways and Means and the yeah. 
budget reconciliation bill is our understanding is the Senate parliamentarian would require a number. So it's not just because they want to force you to vote on number. Um, so, so to a certain debt amount where our understanding is the left really, really wishes to do a um, um, an open ended credit card or to a date certain, which does not fit reconciliation rules. So it's, it would have been nice if the speaker actually had sort of told the truth on here's the mechanism and why. And people forget after the tax reform at the end of 2017, 2018, 2019 were the second and third highest adjusted for inflation tax revenue years in U.S. history. Um, and the COVID spending has been immediate borrowing. Um, we've been blessed the Fed has been willing to buy the U.S. sovereigns. But, um, you know, we're in just, even outside today's public policy, we have a huge demographic headwind. We're getting old very fast. Yeah. Uh, Medicare is the primary driver of U.S. sovereign debt over the next 30 years. How do you actually have an adult conversation around here when the policy that's coming at us looks more like we're trying to take the middle class and the up to a quarter million dollar earners and make them addicted to entitlements? Well, I'd love to have I'd love to, to be able to have a minute to ask you about the tax debate with your position on ways and means. But just to be clear with everything you just said, that would strengthen the argument to pay off Trump debt as well as all of our debt. No, I mean, should the ceiling not be raised to cover our obligations? Well, but we're not paying off debt. What you're doing is you're authorizing additional borrowing. Those so you'd be a no vote on raising debt. the debt ceiling? Um, no, no, that's not what we're saying. And I think you have a lot of Republicans say, make a deal with us. Just as we had sequestration a decade ago, that turns out to have been the, the single most effective thing ever happened in modern federal government for limiting the growth of spending. But that came about because one of these debt ceiling fights. So mm-hmm. it's it, the fiscal you know, cliff. What's on the, yeah. It, 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 but turns out that sequestration actually made a real difference for at least a few years there in bending the debt curve. Last minute uh, here, Congressman, we had uh, Kevin Brady, ranking member on the Ways and Means Committee, join us yesterday. He said Republicans are a flat no on proposed tax hikes for capital gains, higher corporate tax rate, and any of the other fringe ideas, as some might suggest, you know, taxing unrealized gains, CEO compensation. Is he correct on that? Those will be Democratic-only initiatives. Yeah, I believe so, because the modeling right now has been fascinating. Um, The capital gains tax actually loses $33 billion over the 10 years. The only thing it raises uh, any new receipts or revenues um, from it is changing the basis calculations. The corporate tax hike looks like it loses 1 million jobs in the first 24 months. So there's an incredible duplicity on, we understand the left really wants to punish certain groups that they don't consider their political supporters, but it's not helping economic expansion, Man. which we must have if we're going to be able to handle the debt. So what a that's debate what we are in for. Congressman, thank you to be a fly on the wall uh, for these meetings tomorrow and to be in that markup session. I could do a documentary with you. So come back soon. Congressman David Schweikert, Republican from Arizona. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Around the fastest hour in politics, I'm Joe Matthew, live from Washington, and glad you joined us. What a contrast of ideas we've heard this hour. 
a Democrat and a Republican, both serving in Congress, on the threshold of one of the great debates of our time. And I covered Obamacare. I don't think I'm overplaying that. But we're going to find out together over the next couple of weeks here on Bloomberg Radio. And great to have the panel with us after both conversations. We were talking earlier about Afghanistan, the charter flights that are grounded, the need to resettle refugees, and we turn to domestic policy following our conversation with David Schweikert, Republican from Arizona. The panel, Roger Fisk is back for the hour, Democratic strategist, now at New Day Strategy, and George C., CEO at Annandale Capital, Republican strategist for Marco Rubio's 2016 presidential campaign. Let's get into the the stuff about the debt ceiling and reconciliation for that matter. Roger, the debt ceiling is going to be a political uh, situation this time, obviously. Do Democrats force Republicans' hands on this? Nancy Pelosi says it's not going into reconciliation. Janet Yellen says we default the middle of October. We just heard David Schweikert said there's no such thing until we actually run out of cash. What do Democrats do? Interesting question. I think we just made news, too, because if I read if I heard the representative correctly praising the actions of 2011 and 2012, I'm pretty sure we have him on record as inadvertently complimenting President Obama in in, in a way. (laughs) So you may have just made some news there, Joe. By using Um, it for leverage, in other words. Right. So do we hike or suspend the limit? Well, you know, one of the points is, is that, you know, that always has to be remembered is that Few things are played more politically than the debt ceiling, when in, in, in reality, it's obviously addressing bills we have already incurred. But it is a perfect stage. It's a perfect vehicle for a lot of posturing and a lot of finger pointing. But push comes to shove. Uh, no matter what people say at the beginning of September, more often than not, come the end of September, we've raised the debt ceiling 78 times since 1960, two-thirds of that under Republican presidents and one-third under Democratic presidents. And I don't think Congress is really going to fundamentally change as an animal between now and the, and the, the end of September. So I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of job owning, but when the dust settles, um, people are going to sign up and keep the trains running. Is that the way you see it uh, here, George? I, I, I wonder sometimes, having lived through the fiscal cliff, uh, but as Nancy Pelosi frames this as Trump debt, do Republicans owe a vote to either suspend or boost the debt limit? Well, it, this is political standoff and political theater. It's really not more than that. You look at the financial markets for the, the quality of our debt and, and raising the debt ceiling, and, and the, uh, the 10-year Treasury note is around 1.3%. So it's saying we have, we have absolutely no debt issues right now. This is all political posturing, and it'll go away in time. And I, I think the bigger standoff is do we pass the infrastructure bill, or does it continue to be uh, attached to this $3.5 trillion up to $5 trillion spending bill that's on top of that for a whole new host of entitlements? And I think you've got Joe Manchin in particular in the Senate pushing back on linking the two and having the, the $3.5 trillion nominal bill at, at that level. And he's basically saying, I won't I won't do that. And he's the decisive vote. So you're going to see a lot of horse trading over the next month, month and a half on these issues because uh, President Biden really wants to win on, on infrastructure spending at least. So but you're so going to see a lot of back and forth. Joe Manchin wants to win on infrastructure too, though, right? He helped to craft the deal. You're one of 10 senators. Don't you want to go home and say that you brought home the bacon in form of badly needed improvements, especially in his state with regard to to broadband access. George, is that not leverage over Joe Manchin? You know, I think Joe Manchin's got all the leverage in the world right now. I think he's he's arguably the most powerful senator since Lyndon Johnson in that 
in the late 1950s, and I, I think he's going to get what he wants at the end of the day. He'll probably give it to some degree, but I don't think he has to give a whole lot. <laughs> Roger Fisk, you're you're advising uh, Joe Manchin in this case. How far do you push it, knowing that you want to have a, a a deal on not just a deal, but a law on bipartisan infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, I, I think he has. If if you grant uh, that he wants to carve out a centrist kind of role for himself albeit coming from a state that is no stranger to federal dollars. I mean, you can't throw a rock in West Virginia without hitting either a Rockefeller off-ramp or a Robert Byrd courthouse or something else. Um, that he, I think he's established that. And now I think, and I, you started to see this pivot about a month ago. It, it started to go from kind of the, the what and more turned into a conversation about the how. He was roughly signing on, even with a trillion dollars, um, in the families plan, in addition to a trillion dollars with the um, straight up uh, what's called traditional infrastructure plan. So I think he's won the the battle. I think he's crossed the threshold in terms of branding himself um, in that centrist dealmaker role. And now it's really just a question of getting down into the minutia, figuring out what West Virginia gets up out of all this, and ultimately wanting to walk away with a bipartisan win, which I think roughly two-thirds of the Senate probably want to see that. Obviously, the president, as George rightly points out, and Senator Manchin, to the premise of your question. Well, there's a lot there, uh, Roger. If you crank it down to $1.5 trillion, though, as I read this morning in Axios, that's Joe Manchin's number, you risk losing infrastructure when progressives revolt. So how do you balance the two? Well, you know, interestingly enough, and in, in a macabre way, and I don't mean to trivialize this at all, um, but... I think Afghanistan somewhat changes the calculus. I think at this point there needs to be, and there's, there's I think, a, a bipartisan element uh, to this, which is we need to send a signal to ourselves and to the world that we can still function. And if you take, for example, something as, as non-political as our ports, uh, up and down the east and west coast, a lot of our ports are so obsolete that there's a whole class of freighter that's running around the world right now that can't even enter U.S. ports because they're not dredged deep enough and the berths themselves aren't wide enough. So we're, we're aging ourselves out of being competitive. And that's how I think you can go out and frame these things. You can talk jobs in some ways. You can talk investments in another way, but you can really whittle this down in a lot of ways to, to, to being competitive. George, I know they recently dredged the harbor in Boston uh, successfully to to be able to start doing business with bigger boats uh, like Roger's talking about. But that's still, again, that's the hard infrastructure, right? That's that's well, technically the easy part is Democrats look at this and try to sell the reconciliation bill. It's interesting to me to see that the the, the, the fiercest and shrillest rhetoric is on the far left for, for wanting to have almost unlimited spending in, in this deal. But they're not holding the cards now to the point with the Afghani uh, debacle and with polls turning against President Biden, the, the odds are in favor of the people in the middle on both parties who want to cut a deal. And they're going to hold the big cards right now. And I, I've been struck by the lack of deficit hawk rhetoric on the far right. There hasn't been as much of that. The, the, the block of Congress that would be opposed to really uh, – uncontrolled federal spending has kind of disappeared. And the only thing that's holding that back right now is one or two votes in the Senate, Cinema and, yeah. and Manchin. And I think yeah. they're going to win the day. And I think they're going to cut a deal, but it's going to be far diminished from what the far left would like to see. I've got Roger Fisk and George C on the phone. So I want to throw this out there and see if you've heard about it and what you think about it. Nancy Pelosi 
brought it to my attention today as I'm listening to her briefing, her weekly briefing. And I was not familiar uh, with this Justice for J6 rally that's coming on September 18th, apparently. The speaker says uh, lawmakers will be briefed in the next couple of days about security plans for the Capitol. Uh, this is uh, this is a rally in support of those charged with crimes on the insurrection of January 6th. Let's listen to the speaker. This is Nancy Pelosi today. There are some briefings going on at the appropriate level to the Committee of Jurisdiction in our House, which is House Administration, and then we will be briefed after that. Uh, I'll have an announcement about that, but I don't want to say it right here because it involves other people. We've got an announcement, Roger. Are you hearing about this? Are we getting another fence? Do we have something to worry about? Well, I think based on what we've seen, unfortunately, um, and I live here in D.C., and it's important to remember there were two or three little bits of kindling before January 6th, right? There was a Stop the Steal rally, I believe, in mid-December, and then another one where People fanned out across the district and pulled people out of their cars and beat them up because they were wearing masks and stuff. So this stuff has to be taken very, very seriously. You know, my first I've worked for presidential campaigns. My first campaign was John Kerry's. I worked it from its first day to its very last. And there were in some circles, you know, questions about Ohio. It never occurred to me to storm the Capitol, to call for the hanging of the vice president or to assault police officers. This yeah. is disgraceful, traitorous conduct. I think everyone needs to denounce it across the political spectrum because tyranny is force and democracy yeah. is persuasion. And when we stop trying to persuade one another and we pick up bricks and, and clubs, that's when we're losing who we are. So this needs to be denounced in universal, clear language. I'm sorry, George, that I only have 30 seconds, but are you familiar with this? Do we need to take it seriously? I, I think this has unfortunately fallen into politics, and it, it's not going to go very far. I think all patriotic Americans should view January 6th as one of the most tragic, sad, and unpatriotic days in American history and stand on that. But the politics is going to be what rules the day going forward, and I think most of the American people are going to ignore it and just focus on the fact that day was tragic and should never be repeated. Well, I hope we can ignore it. I just wonder when the speaker is talking about a major announcement coming, what the heck is going on here? And I guess the briefings will continue. And, you know, we'll tell you about it as we learn more. Great talk with Roger and George. Roger Fisk, Democratic strategist, principal at New Day Strategy. George C., CEO at Annadale Capital and former senior advisor to Marco Rubio's 16 presidential campaign. I'm Joe Matthew. Thanks for spending the fastest hour in politics with us. We'll do it again tomorrow. Right here. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.